spent his childhood in Oakland, California, uh, in the late 1940s. And in his neighborhood, his backyard neighbor actually was a man by the name of Mr. Bernhauser. And Mr. Bernhauser was a mean old man. Uh, their backyards uh, adjoined, the Winnies and uh, Mr. Bernhauser. And along the fence line uh, on Mr. Bernhauser's property was an Italian plum tree that grew and produced beautiful, fresh, sweet, delicious Italian plums. Now, the rule was that any of the branches, any of the fruit that was over the fence line, uh, y- you could eat. Robert and his, his uh, siblings could eat those. But if you so much as breathed on one of the fruit that was over the fence line on Mr. Bernhauser's uh, property, uh, he would rush from his house and start yelling at you, screaming, shouting about children who were stealing his plums. And this uh, tirade, his tirades went on, usually until another adult from a neighborhood, the neighborhood heard it and came out and calmed the situation down. Uh, Winnie says that most of the time it was his mother who came out, but one time his dad came out. What's going on? What's the trouble? And Mr. Bernhauser started his usual routine, thieving kids, breakers of rules, takers of fruit, monsters in general. Uh, This is how Winnie described what happened next. I'm going to read this paragraph. He said, I guess my father had had enough. For the next thing he did was shout at Mr. Bernhauser and tell him to drop dead. Mr. Bernhauser stopped screaming, looked at my father turned bright red, then purple, grabbed his chest, turned gray, and slowly folded to the ground. I thought my father was God. (laughs) That he could yell at a miserable old man and make him die on command was beyond my comprehension. Fathers loom large in the hearts and minds of their children. They're supposed to. Uh, It's what God made fathers to do. And fathers, following God's own example, are designed to play a critical role in leading and teaching and protecting their children. We all fall short of this high standard. Some fathers fall disastrously uh, short of this high standard. But this is God's plan. This is the goal. Being present in the house as a representative of God himself. I want to take out from that list, leading, protecting, teaching. I want to think with you for a few moments this morning about that teaching portion of fatherhood. It connects really well with what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. We're talking these days about what the Bible teaches about your conscience. Have you ever considered that the conscience is one of the tools that you can appeal to as you seek to disciple those that God has entrusted to your care? Now, Scripture teaches us that that, that your conscience is that inner witness that testifies to you about what you believe about right and wrong. It tells you, your conscience tells you, if you're living up to your own standards. And your conscience is a good gift from God. It, it's, it's part of the warning system that He gave to human beings. We're accountable to God, and in order, as an act of His creative goodness, He's given us a conscience to keep us from incurring more of His wrath. Now the problem is, we've talked about this, haven't we? Your conscience is tainted by sin, just like everything else. So if your conscience is an inner witness that testifies to you about what you believe about right and wrong, I think that both parts of those things, there can be problems with the inner witness and there can be problems with the what you believe about right and wrong part of that definition. Sometimes the inner witness can be, the Bible tells us, seared. That is, you have 
uh, stopped listening to your conscience and it's not shouting at you anymore or it's shouting and you're not listening, you're not hearing it anymore. What happens when you're walking down the street and a car alarm goes off? Absolutely nothing. Right? Um, Nobody does anything about car alarms going off. Uh, Your first thought is that it's probably some dolt who hit the wrong button on his remote. It's your first thought. It's probably not really a crime. You don't need to call the police. It's just a car alarm. Is that how you respond when your conscience goes off? I hope not. It'd be a bad sign. I'm not telling you to go call the police every time you hear a car alarm because it probably is some dolt with his remote. But, you know, don't do that to your conscience. Hmm. That inner witness can also be broken, not, not being seared, but it can be oversensitive, and it screams at you about absolutely everything. Over and over and over again, it pokes and prods you and, and leaves you just with this perpetual gloom of guilt and shame. Now, the, what you believe about right and wrong, that can be broken too. In fact, everybody, your conscience testifies to you about what you think is right and wrong. And, and, and not all of no one's standards naturally matches God's standards perfectly. So one way to calibrate your conscience is to think more carefully about what you believe about right and wrong. When the Bible shapes what you believe about right and wrong, your conscience will be a more useful tool in leading you down a wise and good path. Now this morning we're going to take a little bit of a turn. We're going to turn the corner a little bit and we're going to begin walking through a passage of scripture where Paul helps followers of Jesus learn how to love one another when their consciences don't agree. How do you respond when other believers disagree with you about right and wrong? The Bible has in it, we believe, everything that we need to follow Jesus faithfully. We believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures. But the Bible does not address absolutely everything in, in specific detail. And, and we Christians, we routinely disagree about secondary, tertiary issues, things that are secondary to the Bible's central message. So how do we treat one another? What do we do? I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans, chapter 14, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Paul, uh, Romans has been called the greatest letter that's ever been written, and Paul devoted 10% of this great letter that's ever been written, the greatest letter that's ever been written, to talking about how Christians should treat one another when they disagree. This is an important skill. He wanted the people to learn this. This morning, what I want to do is I want to introduce you to the issues that are at hand in this chapter. So the Roman culture, the Christians in Rome, were dealing with some particular issues. Um, They're in a different culture at a different time. They're different issues than we live with today. But I want to help you understand the issues so that we can draw out from this chapter the principles that are going to help us with our own issues. So to get help in the here and now, we're going to understand the there and then. We're going to look at Romans 14 and the issues there. And then we're going to spend just a couple of minutes in 1 Corinthians 8, another parallel passage. And I want to unpack these headings, uh, these chapters under two headings. First, we're going to talk about the task of theological triage. We're going to talk about theological triage. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. And then we're going to talk about the call in the Bible to accept one another, the call to receive or accept one another. So theological triage and the call to accept one another. 
the Bible is not simplistic. The Bible is not naive about the challenges that we would face in this call to follow Jesus and to love one another. Sometimes we have the impression that the Bible, when, when someone encounters the Bible, the Bible is like a, a, a mold or a stamp that's going to stamp you or shape you into something. And, and, and it makes everybody into identical shapes. That's sometimes the, people that, that the uh, image that the Bible has, that the Bible flattens us out. We have to admit that sometimes our forefathers, um, when they would travel around the world and they would share the gospel on the mission field, they would tell people about Jesus, and then either implicitly or explicitly, they would tell these new converts in Africa or Latin America or Southeast Asia or in North America, they would tell them, Yes, you believe in Jesus, but being a Christian means living just like a northern European. So that you've got to cut your hair and you've got to wear your clothes and you've got to build your house and you've got to farm your land and you're going to sing your songs just like we do because, you know, we're Christians. That's not actually how the Bible calls us to live. The Bible isn't simplistic and the Bible isn't naive. Let's start by talking about theological triage. Before I do that, I want to read Romans 14, 1 through 5. So follow along as I read this, these verses. Paul writes this. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. If you have an emergency this afternoon and you go to Lancaster General Hospital and you walk into the emergency department, sorry, it's Penn Medicine at Lancaster General Hospital, and you walk in there and, uh, uh, and you sit down, you will notice that uh, people enter with all kinds of ailments and they are not served in the order that you arrive. There is someone in the emergency room, hopefully someone with medical training, who is doing triage. They're putting things in order of importance. If you are having a stroke or a heart attack, uh, you'll be seen first ahead of someone who has a fever. If you get shot, gunshot wounds are attended before broken bones. It's the, the process of triage. You have to be able to tell what is of utmost importance, and you have to treat the urgent things first. The same is true, I want to argue, in our theological and biblical convictions, and Paul gives the task of theological triage to the church. And Romans 14 and and 1 Corinthians 8 call us to face the reality that when God calls us together, we're not going to be in 100% agreement about everything. Uh, That's the way it is. This is a part of one of the challenges along with the diversity, the beauty of the diversity in the body of Christ. There's this challenge that we don't agree about everything. And it's God's plan that a congregation should be able to function together even though it's by design a diverse community. It's diverse in age, it's diverse in ethnicity, it's diverse in class and culture and economic status and gifts and skills and political uh, alignment and convictions. Uh, Kent Hughes shared this poem. You'll like this poem, I think. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. 
Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Does that sound like any church you know? Now, why would God want churches to be diverse uh, like this, to have people with different convictions in one local congregation? I think the answer is because the diversity brings glory to God. Diversity glorifies God because when we come together, we gather in his name despite the differences that we have. And we testify by worshiping together that he's more important than any of the differences that we have. Diverse churches testify to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus when they get together even though they're not in the same age group or ethnicity or economic status or class or culture That's how we glorify Jesus. None of those things are as important to us as he is. Thursday morning, NPR had a story about the life expectancy in the United States of African-American men. On average, it is 72 years, which is about four years less than Caucasian men. People tried to figure this out. Why is this? Why are African-American men in the United States living four years on average less than Caucasian men? And one theory that has been proposed is that it has to do with medical care, specifically the ethnicity of doctors. So uh, here's what they did. They randomly assigned 600 African-American men to doctors of various ethnicities, and they discovered that African-American men are vastly more likely to heed medical advice from other African-American doctors than they are from doctors of different ethnicities. So they were much more likely to get a flu shot or to check their blood pressure regularly or make dietary changes if an African-American doctor advised them to do it. Now, I don't think this is a phenomenon uh, among African-American men alone of listening to people who are like you. In fact, um, they checked the doctor's notes and for everyone doctors made more careful notes of patients who matched their ethnicity than they did for other patients. So doctors and patients both, we equally have trouble overcoming those ethnic barriers. But in the church of Jesus Christ, he has the supremacy. He's preeminent over all things. That's the goal. It's it's one of the ways that diversity within the church glorifies him. Now, what those differences call for is theological triage, that we prioritize our convictions. Uh, We can speak about our beliefs at different levels. Some people talk about things like dogma, doctrine, and differences. That's nice because they all start with the same letter. Dogma, doctrine, differences. Or sometimes people talk about absolutes. Uh, convictions and opinions and questions or uh, things like things that are essential things that are important and things that are non-essential I'm going to think about things that are first order second order and third order maybe you can think about this like uh, you would think of a tree when's the last time you climbed a tree some of you it's been a long time I can tell so when you climb a tree you all know this that the strongest, thickest, sturdiest branches are right close to the trunk. And, and, And to be the safest when you're climbing a tree, you get real close to the trunk and hang on to those thick, strong branches. If the higher you get and the farther out you get, things get a little wobbly and a little unsteady. So we have first order issues, second order issues, and third order issues. Um... Let's talk first order truths. I want to uh, suggest to you are things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. 
You cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God's son in the flesh. You can't be a Christian and deny that. You cannot, didn't we learn that in 1 John? John said that over and over again, didn't he? Um, You cannot be a Christian and believe that Jesus did not die for our sins and rise again. You have to believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again in order to be a Christian. Um, First order of truths. Now, if you have questions about using that sort of vocabulary, look how Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. I put those verses down on your note sheet. Um, This is a biblical way to talk. Look what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received, and and upon which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. So there it is. The gospel is a message that is preached and believed. He says, otherwise you have believed in vain. Here it is, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's the trunk of the tree of the fellowship of Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. This is what is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Here's the gospel. It's of first importance. Christ died for our sins. If you're here this morning and you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. We're very glad you're here. We're very happy to have you here. We want you to believe this message. But if you don't, you're not a Christian. This is of first importance. Now, in the second order, so second order things, maybe we could put in second order things that are necessary for us to believe in order to form congregations. So first order issues relates to whether or not you're a Christian. Second order, maybe things that have to do with forming congregations. This is what a doctrinal statement is for. Ideally, our church doctrinal statement contains everything that we need to agree about in order to function together as a church. Must we agree about the rapture in order to worship together as a congregation? I don't think so. It's not in our doctrinal statement. Um, In fact, actually, it's good to have a diversity of opinion about this because when some of us get raptured, the rest of you can stay here to mow the lawn, and that will work well. Okay? That's not how that works. I know that's not how that works. All right? I know that's not how that works. I'm just, just saying. Do we need to have a common view of baptism in order to function as a congregation? I would think so, yes. Um... There are congregations in the world, I know this, that that baptize both babies and baptize believing adults. I know there's congregations that do that. I think that sends a confusing message about who's in the church. So our doctrinal statement says, this is what we believe about baptism. Uh, Baptism is for believers. There are Christians who disagree with us about that, and and I'm not a member of their church, and they're not a member of our church. So first order, to be a Christian. Second order, to form congregations. If I was being really picky, I might want to put in a first order part A and a second order part B. And, you know, I might want to do that, but for simplicity, we're just moving ahead, okay? You understand where we're going. Uh, Now, if that's the standard, our doctrinal statement is what we must agree on all together in order to worship together as a church. And our doctrinal statement has both first and second order things in it. I wonder, think about this the next time you read it. Is there anything that should be in there that's not or that... Uh, 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 is in there that shouldn't be. That would be an interesting discussion. I don't have anything in mind. Some of you are wondering, what's he thinking? I don't have anything in mind. But that's the standard here. Okay, now let's move on to third order issues. 
third order issues I want to label are individual convictions. Our individual convictions. We don't split over these things, but we have convictions about them. Let's look at Romans 14 and see what the Romans had different convictions about. Then we're going to do the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8. Then what I want to do is I want to see if we can find a way, some help for determining where we should put certain beliefs that we have. What order they go in. Is there a way to... That's a very... That's a crucial issue. Can we identify first, second, and third order issues? Well... The Roman Christians, what were the issues in Romans chapter 14? There's three of them. Eating meat, that's in verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, uh, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So eating meat is one of them. Number two, what else? Observing sacred days. They were disagreeing about observing sacred days. Verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. And then the third issue is kind of mentioned on the side, hypothetical, I think. In verse 21, it talks about drinking wine. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So those three issues, eating meat, observing sacred days, and drinking wine. The Roman Christians had a different diversity of convictions about this. Is it okay to eat meat? Is it okay? Uh, how should we treat different days? And is it okay to drink wine? Now, why these three issues? What was going on? There's a lot of discussion about this. Most scholars uh, believe that it has to do with differences between Jews and Gentiles in the congregation. I think we've talked about this before. It comes up an awful lot in the New Testament. So there were uh, uh, Jews who had become followers of Jesus and they had lived their whole lives according to the teaching of Moses in the Old Testament. Well, the teaching delivered through Moses in the Old Testament. They kept the kosher laws and they followed the calendar of religious days and festivals and they carried these traditions and practices and laws into their new lives as followers of Jesus. They were trusting in Jesus as their Savior. There was no question that Jesus had died for their sins and they believed that. But they still lived under those old laws. Uh, and it just seemed wrong for them to stop. Since they didn't know if the meat that had been sold in the marketplace had been killed according to the kosher laws, and they didn't know if the wine had been prepared according to the kosher laws, some of them just felt it was better to not eat the meat and not drink wine altogether. You remember Daniel? Remember what Daniel did when he was carried off into captivity? He did not eat meat in the court because it was not prepared according to kosher laws. He only ate vegetables. This is what these people are doing. Now, notice here... Paul applies the term weak here. We're going to talk about this. Those with weak consciences have consciences that are easily provoked. And they're not able to, with a clear conscience, eat meat. Their consciences are weak in that they're particularly tender about these issues. Um, weak conscience believers have a long list of requirements that they must follow. Now we should remember this because this is not the way we're used to thinking about weak and strong Christians. In fact, it's the opposite of the way that we're used to thinking about weak and strong Christians, especially in light of our American Christian fundamentalist past. Now I use the word fundamentalist. I give thanks to God for fundamentalists. They have taught me to love the Bible. They taught me a lot about the Bible. And I use that term. It's not meant to be negative at all. We love fundamentalists. Uh, but uh, let me give you an illustration. 
So when I was in high school, uh, my home church hired a new pastor. And we hired him. He moved into the parsonage in the spring sometime. And when summer came, he and his family uh, came to prayer meeting. They had been coming to prayer meeting before that. But in the summertime, uh, they came to prayer meeting. And his, our pastor's wife was wearing shorts to prayer meeting. Uh, they were not immortal, immodest shorts. That was not the issue. It was not, that was not the problem at all. The problem was that some people thought it was too casual to wear to prayer meeting. You can wear shorts at the grocery store, you can wear shorts on the basketball court, you can wear shorts at the beach, but you can't wear shorts at prayer meeting. One of the deacons in, in the particular in the church was unhappy. He said, she's wearing shorts to church and that offends me. And because I'm offended, she needs to stop because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, again, this is the way we're used to thinking about these things. So you... Um, he has higher standards for appropriate uh, attire for prayer meeting. So he's the mature Christian. He's the strong Christian. When you become a Christian, we teach you the Bible, and then we teach you the rules. And then you become a strong, mature Christian who keeps the rules. Um, and, and because her standards were lower, she's the weak Christian. That's the way that we're used to thinking about these terms. That's the way that we have historically thought about being weak and strong. Now, what should you wear to church? Whatever your conscience tells you to wear to church. Because there's no direct command in the Bible is about it, is there? I, I think I know why. Um, so in the Bible, the, a majority, not all, but a majority of the first Christians that the Bible was written to were poor Dan Houck was talking to me last week about the, the command in the Bible, associate with the lowly. It was the poor, it was the lowly that became followers of Jesus. The good news of Jesus was good news to the poor. What sense would it have made for Paul to tell people who had one or two outfits, maybe, uh, definitely one, maybe two, uh, that they had to dress up and wear their fanciest ones to, to church? Which, pair, uh, which of my two work pants, work tunics, are the fancy ones? You know, there's no commands about that. And, you know, when the Bible talks about the church getting together, it talks about it more in terms of a family reunion than a symphony concert. And you dress differently from a family reunion than a symphony concert. So the Bible doesn't give us specific directions. What should you wear to church? Whatever your conscience tells you. And as long as it's modest, because that's the one thing the Bible does tell us about what we should wear to church. Okay, now we'll move on here. Paul here, notice what he's saying about being strong and being weak. Weak Christians have many, many rules. More rules than the Bible does. Strong Christians have fewer extra-biblical rules. Hmm. Well, we're probably going to come back to this some point in time, but the man said, it offends me. It offends me. I'm offended by that attire. Are you offended in the sense that... Uh, the, the person's more casual standards is tempting you to violate your conscience and dress more casually? Or are you, are you offended because you just don't like it? There's a great difference in the text. If you're offended because you just don't like it, then Paul's not on your side. If you're offended because you're tempted to violate your own conscience and dress more casually, then we can have a conversation. Paul's turning weak and strong upside down from the way we're normally, we normally think about these things. 
Now, you have to even think further about this. See, as followers of Jesus, as we grow, your life might look like it has more restrictions. It might happen. Uh, remember uh, last week I told you about Andy Nacelli, or maybe a couple weeks ago. Andy Nacelli, when he was a teenager, loved sports. He read sports magazines. He had sports posters everywhere. He played in four different leagues. He loved, loved, loved sports. As he began to grow as a follower of Jesus, he thought to himself, I am dedicating my whole life to sports, and I think I should be reserving some time for Jesus in my life. So he pulled back some of his, restri- uh, his subscriptions to sports magazines. He pulled out of some of the leagues he was in. But he didn't do it because they were external rules that were imposed on him. They were choices that he made himself in order to follow Christ, and there's a difference. Mature Christians may let go of a lot of things in order to follow Jesus, but they, but they don't believe that they constitute a necessary list, a mandated list, a required list in order to follow Christ. They turn from those things to follow him faithfully. Weak Christians have lists imposed of extra-biblical issues. Does that make sense? I hope so, because we're going to move on now to 1 Corinthians 8. You might not want to turn to 1 Corinthians 8, because i got a phrase from 1 Corinthians 8. The first line of 1 Corinthians 8 says, now about food sacrificed to idols. That's all we're going to talk about. Now about food sacrificed to idols. So the issue in Corinth, so in Romans, eating meat, uh, sacred days, drinking wine. In Corinthians 8, it was food sacrificed to idols. So in the ancient Corinthian culture, in fact, in the ancient Greek culture in general, almost all of the meat was slaughtered in connection with a temple. People would gather at the temple, not the Jewish temple, a a pagan god, uh, Greek, Roman temple. You'd gather at the temple, the animal would be prayed over, dedicated to God, the animal would be slaughtered, some of the meat would be burned to the God, some of the meat would be given to the priests, and some of the meat would be served to the masses that had gathered there at the temple. That's where a lot of people got their meat. That's where actually most people got their meat, at these temple feasts. And um, any leftovers that they had from the temple feasts, they would sell in the marketplace. So every temple had a butcher shop. Now... uh, Well, temple culture is very important in this era. Uh, Most large feasts, those were the banqueting halls, were were idol temples. Can a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols? That's the question. Can they participate in the temple feasts? Some Christians were apparently saying, look, those opening religious ceremonies, they don't mean a thing. I just go for the food. It's like praying for football games in Texas. Right? They pray every Friday night before they play football in Texas. It don't mean a thing because those, those players are not going to play like Christians. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Now, there's other Christians, probably Jews, some Gentiles, who are arguing you shouldn't eat meat at all because it's all been, been ruined by this temple idol worship. So what, they sh- what should they do? Well, uh, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to argue that you shouldn't go to those temple worship services. He's going to say that. But that you can, he's going to argue, eat meat that's been sold in the marketplace as long as it doesn't violate your conscience or the conscience of someone uh, around you or bring harm to the conscience of others. So those are the issues. Eating meat, drinking wine, observing special days, and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Do we have those same issues today in our culture? Not really. Um, we have some disagreements about days and what to do about Sunday. 
But there's no connection in our culture between meat and idolatry unless your butcher is worshiping Molech in his back room when he slaughters your cows. Okay, that's maybe... Um, believers in other cultures have issues with this. Other countries, they have issues with this. But we, we have our own set of issues. I've mentioned some of them in recent weeks. I just want to learn about these issues in the text so that we can help extract from the text principles that we need to navigate these issues ourselves. Let's back up, though, for just a minute, uh, and ask a basic question. How can you tell if something is a first or second or third order issue? How do you know if eating meat or not eating meat is worth splitting a church over? Should we divide the congregation over body piercings or tattoos or school choices? Churches have. We're Baptists. We have PhDs in splitting over things like that, right? We're experts. How can you tell if something is a first or a second or a third order issue? We have to start there. We have to have the wisdom and the maturity to know how to prioritize. Diversity in the body means that at times we're going to disagree. How do you categorize those disagreements? I have two stories about Charles Spurgeon today. Here's the first one. It's not the good one. So Charles Spurgeon began his ministry in London. And when he first began his ministry in London, he had a good friend. His name was Joseph Parker. And Joseph Parker was a preacher too. He was a great preacher. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker were good friends. They often met together. They pulpit swapped sometimes. But their friendship ended, and their friendship ending made the newspaper. Uh, The newspapers reported that Spurgeon and Parker were no longer friends because, according to Spurgeon, Parker attended the theater. Now, no one gasped at that moment. Let me say that again. Parker attended the theater. Yeah, thank you. Okay, good. Right, right, right. Okay. Hmm. Is that an issue worth splitting? Where does that go? Uh, I'm not sure if it arose in this context, but sometimes other Christians complained to Charles Spurgeon about his cigar smoking. He defended himself. He said, well, I don't smoke to excess. And they said, what do you mean by smoke to excess? He said, two at a time. (laughs) That would be excess. (sighs) We don't get this right. We don't always get, even godly men like Charles Spurgeon don't always get this right. So, but let me give you a couple questions to ask. All right. Um, You might want to add more questions to this list, but let's start here. Uh, Take the issue at hand and ask yourself this question. First, does the Bible address this issue directly and repeatedly? Does the Bible address this issue directly and repeatedly? Here's one way to tell this is a first, second, or third order issue. Because the more the Bible talks about it and the more direct it talks about it, the higher it goes in, in, in importance. The Bible tells us things to do, and the Bible tells us things explicitly to avoid. On the to-do list, gather with God's people for worship regularly. Do that. The Bible says it. It says it repeatedly. Do it because it's important. All right? Um, The Bible also tells us explicitly to avoid sexual immorality, and it says it repeatedly. There's no debate about this. The Bible is clear about this, so avoid sexual immorality. It's a direct and repeated command of the Bible. But there are other issues that the Bible doesn't address directly or repeatedly. And Bible, by that silence, the Bible is suggesting that the issue is secondary or tertiary. All right. Um, now here's the second question. Here's my second question. How close is this issue to what the Bible addresses directly and repeatedly? How close is this issue 
to what the Bible addresses directly and repeatedly. So my first question, I'm asking about the direct commands of the Bible. Now we're asking about how close this issue is to the direct teachings of the Bible. How closely related. Our goal is to major on the majors and not the minors. What we're going to see in Romans chapter 14 is that Paul builds his arguments in deep things. We're going to learn about deep truth. You know, he starts by talking about eating vegetables. That does not sound like a big deal. But Paul in this chapter talks about judgment, the judgment of God, our accountability to God, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus in our lives. Those are deep things. How close is the issue to the deep things that the Bible teaches? We're going to focus on the deep things, not the peripheral things. Remember what Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 8.8. Does food, he says, but food does not bring us near to God, We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So does the issue bring you closer to God or not? If not, you shouldn't really worry about it. Unless your conscience tells you to worry about it, then you should. Now, let's make things interesting, shall we? Let's make things more complicated, all right? Romans 14.5, we read it a a minute ago. It says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Paul says, Christians, you can treat days however you, you want. You, you're free to treat days differently. It's a matter of conscience. But I printed out the, I think I printed in the notes. Did I print Galatians 4, 10 and 11? Ooh, look at this. So Paul's writing the Galatians, and he uh, excoriates them for marking days. Look what it says. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Oh, no. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Now, how is it that Paul can tell the Romans, eh, days, do what you want. But he tells the Galatians, what's wrong with you? You're marking days. What's wrong with Paul? Why why is he doing that? See the difference? Well, here's the, the problem. In Galatia... The believers there were treating special days as necessary to the gospel. They thought that special days was really close to the trunk of the tree. And, and, and they were confusing following special days with the gospel itself. And Paul says, no, no, no. Do not follow special days if you think it makes you a Christian because it does not. No. But in Rome, the people didn't think it made them a Christian. They thought it was a way that they could live to honor God. And and Paul said, sure, you can honor God that way if you want to. As long as you don't confuse it with the trunk of the tree, you're fine. See the difference? How close is the issue that we're dealing with related to what the Bible teaches directly and repeatedly? Theological triage should at the same time lead us to greater unity around the essentials. We love the gospel. And it should lead us to greater liberty and greater freedom around the non-essentials. Do a day's what you want. Now, let's finish by just talking for a couple of minutes about this call to accept one another. I'm going to briefly introduce this uh, command, and then we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking it. Accept or receive is one of the most important commands in Romans 14 and 15. It's how he begins, accept the one whose faith is weak, and how, it's how he ends in, in Romans 15, 7. Accept one another. And what's the standard for how we accept one another? Verse 7 of uh, Romans 15 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. That's the standard. 
Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. That's a high standard. And then there's a lot of one another texts in this passage that we're going to look at. Uh, look at Romans um, 13, 14, 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And then Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual, ed- mutual edification or which it, uh, building up of one another. Let's build up one another. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that we're so tempted to condemn and judge one another? Why do we find fault about these non-biblical, extra-biblical issues? Why, why are we so suspicious of what God might be doing in someone else's life? Uh, the great Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe died last month, and I heard him speak several times when I was in college. I read a lot of his books. One of the things I appreciate about Warren Wiersbe, he said, it took me a long time to learn, but I finally got it. I learned that sometimes God blesses people I disagree with. Here's my second Charles Spurgeon story. He was on a train once. He was traveling to a speaking engagement. He was in first class. Expensive. Traveling in first class as preacher. There was a woman who knew him. She was on the same train except she was in third class. And, and she saw him. She got off the train and she saw him get out of the first class car. And she went up to him and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, you're in first class. I would not have expected that. I was in third class taking care of the Lord's money. And he said, I was in first class taking care of the Lord's servant himself. Sometimes we criticize people out of an ungodly desire to control other people. Sometimes we do it out of fear. What we're going to learn in the the next few weeks is that wise decisions about what you believe about right and wrong and how you act on the basis of what you believe about right and wrong are to be framed by two things, knowledge and love. Knowledge and love. Both of those things. Love without knowledge means you have no boundaries at all. Your convictions are worthless. Knowledge without love is mean and cold and judgmental. See, the great risk of always talking about these tertiary issues is we begin to give the impression to people who don't know Jesus that following Jesus is a matter of just getting new rules. Because that's what we judge one another about, and that's what we talk about is the rules. I'm going to give people that impression. I'll finish by telling you something that I learned from David French. David French was giving a lecture not too long ago about some of the changes in our culture, and he was talking about tolerance. It's a buzzword. He asked a group of people, he said, are you tolerant people? And they said, oh, yes, 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 we're very tolerant people. We are tolerant. And he said, okay, great. What sort of things do you tolerate? And they said, they mentioned all the cultural issues that we're supposed to tolerate these days. We tolerate homosexuality. We tolerate same-sex marriage. We tolerate feminism. We tolerate transgenderism. We tolerate everything. And he said, oh, well, what's wrong with those things? What's wrong with them? Nothing's wrong with them. We, did you hear us? We tolerate them. We, we, uh, nothing's wrong with them. They were horrified that he would think that they would think that something was wrong with those things that they're tolerating. And he said, well, if nothing's wrong with them, then what are you tolerating? You see, to tolerate something means that you respond civilly to something when you disagree or civilly with someone that you disagree with. If you don't think anything is wrong, then you're not really tolerating anything. That's the challenge uh, of tolerance. Within the church, we're called to a higher standard, acceptance. Will you join me in learning to think this way? 
more clearly to love one another as Paul calls us here. That's the goal for the weeks that are to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. It is not simplistic. It is not naive. It makes us think carefully and deeply because we want to love each other well. So I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would sharpen our consciences, that you would make them more effective and useful uh, for our following you, and that you would teach us indeed what it is to accept and to receive one another. Those whose consciences are weaker than ours and those whose consciences are stronger than ours. Lord, we want people to know that Jesus is the center of our church and the good news about his death and resurrection for our sins is what we love the most. So help us to put our convictions in their place. Help us to do that because of your kindness to us and and in answer to our praying this morning. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Let's stand as we close in singing.